why don't we have a little meditation this morning? So if you close your eyes, I'd like for us to do a little exercise that we haven't done for some time. It's something that's very simple. Uh, wait just a minute. Don't close your eyes. <laughs> Open your eyes. <laughs> let me tell you, let me give you an example of how this works. Um, oh, a couple of years ago when I was not nearly so enlightened as you see me today, um, Gail and I went to the Orr house. And um, I forget what we were arguing about, but it was one of those evenings. Uh, and we came out of the Orr house um, at odds with each other. So we decided to play a little game, which is that we joined hands and uh, we just started walking around the plaza. And each of us had to tell the other person one thing that the other one had done recently um, that was thoughtful or loving or kind, gentle, anything like that. So I would say one and then Gail would say one. The first few were very hard to get out. <laughs> they were hard to think of, and they were very hard to express. But um, I said we started out holding hands. We didn't at all. No, I, that's right. we did not start out holding hands. But after we had gotten to about number six or seven or something, we had our arms around each other, and the whole mood had lifted. It can be that simple. Now, I'm going to ask you to do that very exercise this morning as your meditation. So now you can close your eyes. I just want to tell you, that was called the lead-in. Manny's, Dr. Manny's school, <laughs> he said, always give a lead-in. <clears throat> um, so... Here's what I'd like for you to do. First of all, I would like for you to think of your primary relationship being that person who is currently on your mind the most. This is probably also the person that you are coming in contact with most physically, your boss or your spouse or the child you live with. Or, but it may not be. The person that you are thinking of most at this time in your life. And I first of all want you to think of any grievances that you have against this person. Any time that you have been slightly afraid, mildly irritated, murderously angry, uh, anything like that, that that comes to your mind, any judgment you've made about the way they dress, the way they talk, the way uh, they eat, about their spiritual beliefs, political beliefs, how they conduct their business, anything at all that's a little bit of a shadow.
any time they've been thoughtless, selfish, insensitive to something you were going through, insensitive to someone else. And please notice what happens to your mind as you walk down this very dark road. It's almost like it puckers, it shrinks, it contracts, it hardens. Do you notice that as you think of a grievance, an unkindness, especially one to you, where you slighted? Was there a time in which you needed their help and they didn't give it? And now, reverse that. Think again of this person. Notice this is difficult to make the transition. Notice that you don't want to make the transition and that you don't think they deserve it. They deserve for you to think badly of them because they acted badly. That's the feeling. They shouldn't get away with it. And for you to forgive them is to let them get away with it. And that's the trouble with the world, right? But go ahead and make the transition, even though it takes just the tiniest bit of effort to do so. And beginning with the present moment and going backwards in time so that you don't get into nostalgia starting with uh, today and going back this past week and this past month and so forth. Think of any time this person has done anything that was thoughtful, that was gentle. It may have been to an animal or a child. Anything that was kind, anything that made someone laugh, or relax anything that was fair or truly honest. And now walk down that lane of lights for just a moment. And as you walk down it, thinking of first one thing and then another, let these things come slowly and naturally to your mind. Don't force this. Just dwell on them and they'll come to your mind. Little things. Notice, at the same time, what happens to your mind. Its boundaries dissolve. It unites with this brother or this sister without effort. Did you know that you were thinking about two different people? That is the whole trick. One is a mask, an ego, if you will, and the other is the untouched, unblemished, perfect child of God, held in the arms of God and united with you that has nothing to do with this little soap opera that this person has gone through. And so you are forgiving nothing You're merely turning your eyes away from what first attracted you. 
narrowed your mind and made you a little bitter or scared and looked instead at the light that the shadow indeed seems to hide and to hold from you at times but is actually untouched by all this nonsense. And now end this meditation by looking at yourself in exactly the same way. Quickly forgive yourself and see within you the holy, holy light of God. And remember some gentle thing that you yourself have done. Do not get caught up in arguments that you had other motives. Of course you had other motives because there are two things. Light and shadow. Reality and unreality. But give your credit for the gentleness and the sweetness and the kindness and for trying. And do that now for just a moment. You are indeed the light of God. This is our periodic question and answer session. Uh, yes, the question was, as a parent, and I'm the parent of three, three sons now, <laughs> um, one is, uh, what, three weeks? I, I should know this, shouldn't I? <laughs> one is uh, four years and one is 24 years. Um, have I found any way to short-circuit the ego? Well, let's take different age groups. Uh, at three weeks, the breast is just terrific. <laughs> You point mommy in the right direction, and that takes care of all the fussy things. Uh, little Jordan is um, growls a lot. I call him snort for short. You see. He just growls all. It's just a wonderful, wonderful sound. And uh, our uh, astrologer here in the uh, among our deacons told us why this is. He's a Leo. <laughs> <laughs> So with an infant, you, of course, understand that no matter what the infant wishes to communicate, it has only one way of saying it. So if it has a little ache in its tummy, or if it's hungry, or if it wants to be held, or if it's sleepy, or if it wants its diaper changed, that's the only thing it can say for all those. And, of course, there are times in which you have done everything that you uh, can think of doing. And that's the point in which it's very good to watch your emotions and watch your thoughts because it is possible to get angry at a very, very small child. This seems almost impossible, but uh, all you have to do is just read the papers and see how this is, in fact, quite common. In working on a crisis line uh, for many years, I talked to a number of mothers who were young, single, uh, wanted to go out, and they felt that their whole life was, if not ruined, that a shadow had been, had been cast over it. 
that they had this baby. And so the baby was a hindrance to what they thought they should be doing. And that is the key. You know, in the last several Sundays, we've been talking about that first section of chapter 30 called the New Beginning. We covered the first two rules last time, and I told you that there were five more. I urge you to study those for at least five weeks and try to apply them. But one of the things that it emphasizes in those seven rules is the common activity of our mind to think that something has gone wrong. And you can bless yourself no more deeply than to become aware of when this begins to happen to you as you go through the day. Something has gone wrong. It is, at first, unconscious. It shouldn't be happening this way, is the feeling. And I promise you, this begins very early in the morning, and it mounts as the day goes on, and this is what makes you tired, and this is what makes you discouraged. And this is why there are these blow-ups that occur during the day. You may not act out your blow-up, but you know when you have it inside. Suddenly, all this chaos, there's just this general deterioration, and the noises are too loud, and the traffic's too congested, and you can't take your job anymore, and there's this slight feeling of panic. That didn't just happen. It accumulated. And it began with the feeling that something was not right. It began with your writing your own rules for happiness. And this is what we must become aware of. You see, it's no coincidence that this... uh, comes at the end of the text. This is assuming that you have studied the text and that you've done most of the lessons. And it begins with, the new beginning now becomes the focus of the curriculum. The goal is clear, but now you need specific methods for attaining it. This is not an easy transition to make. to go from understanding the goal and knowing what is ego and what is Holy Spirit, what is peace and what is fear, to making the rules whereby you become the peace of God habitual. Your ego will resist this with all of its might, having only the might, of course, that you yourself give it but you have given it considerable might. And it will resist this with everything because when you begin practicing the rules whereby you know you can have a peaceful day and you can love your little baby or your little teenager or your little four-year-old or your grown child or whatever, then you have tremendously weakened your ego because now you realize it's all up to you that the rules are simple and the only question is do I wish to walk home now? And so this is what happens to the young parent. There is a uh, man who attends this church 
who is considering taking over a newborn baby. And so even though that is not a common experience for men to start with a newborn baby and be a single parent, it of course happens also. And oftentimes the uh, the man also has the feeling of he can't do it right. No matter what he does, it's not right. And so one of the ways of undercutting the ego with a newborn baby is to watch this very carefully and to realize it's all right for the baby to have just one way of saying things. And that after you've done everything that you can do, you've done everything that you could do. And so you just let the baby uh, lie uh, quietly in your arms or you make it comfortable. And you wait a little bit and bless it. Instead of trying one more thing and one more thing and one more thing and getting yourselves into a, into a panic. As a child gets older, it becomes apparent that it is fresh from heaven. Now, this has been greatly misunderstood and misused throughout the ages, this concept that somehow children are perfect and that it's only society that damages them. This is obviously not correct. Children obviously have egos. But at that point, at the, at the very beginning of the child's life, there is a brightness there, there is a freshness that is almost inescapable. How then do you undercut the ego at that age. And that age, of course, has no definite boundaries. But we're talking about uh, anywhere from, say, uh, age one to uh, just pre-adolescence. Well, with the younger child, if you can understand that it has primarily one way of communicating, it's no longer crying, it is playing. Children love to be played with and they feel loved when they are played with. The thing about it is that they like to play in a different way than adults do. As we've said before here, adults like to play quiet games like reading a book or watching TV or taking a walk or something like that. Children like to play active games. And children like to play repetitious games. And so adults like quiet things with a certain variety, and children like active things that are repetitious. This does not have to be a conflict. If you understand, if you allow yourself to see that the child feels loved when you play with it, and you love the child, then you will not go past your sense of enjoyment. It is always wrong to play with a child when you're feeling guilty are out of a sense of duty because the child will pick this up and a very young child, of course, identifies more with the parent's mind than it does its own mind. It almost identifies with its own mind not at all in the very early years. And so, although it acts out its feelings in quite a different manner, this is very dramatic. Have you noticed this? <clears throat> this is not an aura. This is a... <clears throat> 
Uh, although it acts it out in a different manner, it does reflect your state of mind. And this is easy to miss because it acts it out in a different manner. And so always it's your peace of mind that is the answer to any problem. And so a very simple way to shortcut an ego attack with a child, and all children have ego attacks, is to pick the child up and hug it and kiss it and play with it a little bit. This can always, almost always be tried before you say no. But you must say no. And so a third way of undercutting the ego with a young child is to have very few rules, but have them absolutely consistent and fair and immovable. So there's a sense of safety with the child. So play few but fair and absolutely firm no's and then since it is your mind that they're acting out you might try love first unless of course the child is breaking an old established rule that it knows very very well if the child begins having temper tantrums or whining or does that kind of thing and children will try this you are not being kind and you will not make the child happy to simply allow this approach to life to develop. The child is on an unhappy path, and you must pick the child up and put it on a happy path. That is the feeling. It's not that you correct the child or you get mad at the child or you hurt the child, but it is now trying out once again, screaming and kicking or whining or begging or uh, whatever else it's doing. And so you very gently, but very firmly, pick it off of that path and you set it on the other path, the happy path. The child that is entering adolescence is going through a very sad time because it has experienced its first real disappointment with the world. And most children react to this disappointment by turning back to the world almost with a vengeance. But to the world that they have not yet experienced. And so this seems almost like a reaction against you. But it's really not. You have simply showed them one part of the world and so now they will turn to another part of the world. And they will try this out for a while. So in effect they're saying Surely the world has something that can satisfy me and make me happy. Surely I haven't been that wrong. And so they turn back to the world, often in, in a form that you have not found acceptable yourself. If you can realize that most of this will evaporate within a few years, and that there loss of obedience is not necessarily a loss of love and if you will not try to recapture love by making them more obedient but if instead you will once again as you do with the younger child have very few no's but be consistent and fair then you can help the child go through this period 
But what happens with most uh, parents is they're running after the child. They're running after the teenager through the house, screaming at them, you haven't taken out the garbage. For five days, you haven't taken out the garbage. And this is a scene that's repeated all over the country. Some parent running after their teenager. You didn't clean up your room. You didn't make your bed for the third day in a row. This, of course, does nothing to help anything. It is not the valuing of peace. And so you set rules that you know you can enforce. This is just pure common sense. Why set a rule that you can't enforce? A rule that the child can break easily and whenever it wishes. Like don't see so and so or never do such and such when you're out of my sight. There's no way to enforce that and that just causes some sort of hypothetical battlefield out there. So, of course, you have a few simple, fair Number of rules. Rules that are obviously fair, very few of them, and then your role now will reverse. Because up until that time, I promise you, the child has been your teacher. And that is why we have children in the audience here. And that's why the most of the money that this church that you put in the contribution box uh, goes to the Sunday school. We have gotten the best Sunday school teachers that we can find in Santa Fe. And we love to have children here in the congregation because children really are a little bit ahead of us until they take that first dive back into the world. And that can come, at, of course, an earlier age than, uh, pre, in, than, than adolescence. Now the role reverses for a moment. And you are to the child the way the child was to you. Now you are simply a little beacon. You are simply a, a white flag of hope that that's just waves very calmly in the breeze but seeks no attention. So you call no attention to yourself and you do not contrast yourself with the child and you do not contrast the child with other children but you simply reflect the peace of God as best you can. This is an extremely difficult period for parents to go through because it seems as if this one that they have loved so much and so deeply and so long has now turned against them. And I, I realize that this is very, very hard. And of course now, uh, with the philosophy that's so prevalent and has been for the last decade or two, the older child now turns against you too. Won't come home for Christmas. Uh, takes insane stands against your behavior. Using deodorant, huh? <clears throat> now, of course, in Miracle says that if your brother, this is a paraphrase, and it's the paraphrase that's commonly used, and it's totally inaccurate. If your brother makes an outrageous demand, do it. If you'll go back and read the two passages that address itself to that subject, you'll see that it's not saying anything of the sort. And of course, you do not do what someone is asking you to do out of their ego because they don't know what they want you to do. If they're conflicted about it, they don't know what they want you to do. And so pause and ask yourself, what is my brother, my sister, who happens also to be my child, asking of me? Don't answer the question. 
Just ask it and let it sit there. And you will see what they are asking. And so, for example, there are some therapy groups that now train you, I know of two that do this, train you to look other people in the eye without turning your head away. And you will be called on this, as, as uh, I have and other people have, by not looking people in the eye. Now, is that really what they're asking you to do, to look them in the eye? Because to look people in the eye the way some groups are now training people to do can be very uncomfortable since there is a sort of normal pattern of which, in which you look at a person during one part of the sentence, but you don't look, them, look at them in another part of the sentence. And this can be studied, but it doesn't need to be studied. You, you naturally do it. But you can train yourself to never take your eyes off of the other person. And I know you've had conversations with people like that, and it was disturbing and you didn't quite know. Now, you also can be called on this. Why aren't you looking me in the eyes? Well, the request, of course, isn't that you use the facial, facial muscles differently. This isn't the request, but it sounds like it doesn't. Please use your facial muscles differently. The request is one of honesty. Would you be honest with me? Would you be sincere? Would you love me? Would you respect me? And your answer is, indeed, I will. That's the real request. But you could only know that in silence, and you may not be able to put words to it. So yes, your teenager is calling out for help, but do not try to answer the question. Don't try to decide what help they need. Just open yourself. Let the love flow in and let the love flow out. And wait. They won't have pimples when they're 40. And they won't be experimenting with all this. And they won't hike their trucks up 27 feet. And chrome the headlights and everything. They won't be doing that when they're 40. This is, you don't have to save them from this. You see. Just be patient. Now is your time to carry the load. In all relationships, almost all the time, one person is stronger than the other. This ch changes back and forth. Once you see the rhythm of this, you will be deeply touched by it. In every relationship, someone is called to be a teacher of God because they understand that they must be a teacher of God and the other person at that moment is too confused or too weak or too much in their ego to do it. This can vary even in a single day several times. It is all right for you to assume that you are being asked to carry the load for everyone all the time. You cannot hurt yourself. You can only gladden yourself if you will do that. So patience, fairness, simplicity would be the ways to undercut the ego for the adolescent. Okay, the question was, how can you be uh, creative, uh, productive, 
humane, perhaps, uh, and it also not be, uh, not have as your goal uh, making big bucks. Um, well, uh, if your purpose is to make money, and this is why if your life is consumed with affirmations uh, designed to put more money in your pocket, you've put yourself in an extremely difficult position. It's an unnecessary position. It's all right, of course, to use an affirmation to rid yourself of fear, but if you take on as your primary goal in life to have more money, I can promise you that you are on an, on an unhappy path. Now, unlike a parent, God is not going to pick you up and set you on the happy path. God will wait patiently, or your teacher will wait patiently for you to change your mind, will whisper gently in your ear every time you turn your ear to your internal teacher, but you will not be forced off of an unhappy path. Things that begin with the thought of money are almost doomed to unhappiness. So marrying someone because they have a lot of money set yourself, set, will set you up, in most cases, for an unhappy marriage. Taking a job only because it offers you more money uh, sets you up for an unhappy experience. It is almost impossible to live in the 1980s and not feel guilty about money. And so if you, if you know you have made money your primary object, then you think you have to pay for that, and you will see to it that you do. There's nothing wrong with money, and there's nothing right with money. It's just like sex and everything else that at this particular time that's been taken out of context. If you will let money simply slip back into its natural place, then there will be no problem about money. Now, the mistake that many people make is that they think that it is more spiritual to not have money. It is more spiritual to quit their job. And it, this simply makes it more difficult. How does it make it more easy for you to experience the peace of God if your source of income is now highly uncertain and you have to resort to scrounging and begging and things like that? This is not a happy road, and there's nothing spiritual about it. The truth is, you need do nothing. There is no stand that you are asked to take on money, or sex, or having a child, or going to the spa, or exercise, or any diet, or white sugar, or anything that you want to think of that's being talked about so much this, uh, at this particular time. There is no right or wrong stand. There is only peace. And so it matters only with the peace with which you do it. And if you will learn to make peace your guide, you can make all decisions from peace. And that's why I've urged you to study that section, because it will teach you how to do that. We have to get to the point where we trust our state of mind and not considerations. Do you see the difference? You must trust the decision 
because you know your state of mind at the time you make it, and not because you have considered this, that, and the other. Not because you've taken this factor and that factor into consideration. This is a radical departure from the way most of you have been living. Most of you have been making decisions based on considerations and calculations. And if I do this, such and such may happen. If I do that, this other thing may happen, and on and on and on. And this is called reasonableness. Think about something long enough, and it becomes impossible for you to do it without fear. Think about something long enough, and it becomes virtually impossible for you to do it without fear. You help yourself not at all to think about any decision. Decisions do not need thinking about. They need you to stop, to pause, to rest a moment. And to concentrate on your state of mind and not on the decision. And so you find yourself deciding the least little things during the day. And so you begin your practice with these least little things. You don't stop every single, I don't stop every time I state an idea. It would be terribly confusing to you and disconcerting if I were to do that. But I promise you I stop before I begin the sermon. And I promise you I stop during the sermon if I get confused, if I begin to feel frightened about what I'm saying or what I'm thinking about saying what I'm considering saying. And so you begin <clears throat> with those decisions that you recognize during the day, and you stop, and you fall back into the arms of God. You fall into this lake of peace. It is not perfect peace, and you will be very confused if you try to reach some ideal state of peace. It's simply more peace. But if, as this section says, your dedication is weak, if you do not feel strong, then you haven't finished yet. If there isn't a sense of resolve and a crispness to your thought, then you've stopped a little short. Go until you have some sense of strength. This does not take a great deal of time. Strength in the peace. Strength in the knowledge of the presence of the peace of God in your heart. Not some perfect state, but more peace than you had. A quietness, a gentleness, so that you can say to yourself, I know I'm fairly gentle now. My mind feels fairly gentle. I'm fairly at peace now. Now you take up the question, say, of the job. And you say, what would I like to do? Don't be afraid of those words. You are the child of God. Your ego does not want you to use those words. What do I want to do? It wants you to make your decision on any other grounds. The grounds of fear. The grounds of excitement. The grounds of some past experience. But not what do I want to do? It requires no thinking to know what you want to do. 
Notice children always know what they want to do, little children. Ask them anything. If the child is young enough, it tells you instantly what it wants to do. This is your God-given right, your inheritance. You know what you want to do, but you are so in a habit of deciding on the basis of anxiety and fear that it's going to take you a while to get back to that knowledge. It's going to take some practice. And so begin the practice. And so you see you have this decision to make. You have been offered this job. You're supposed to give them your answer by the end of the day today. And so now is the time to make the decision. You make no decision in advance. What's the point of making a decision in advance of the time there is to make it? But now the time is at hand. And so you close your eyes. You quiet your mind. And because your mind is peaceful, you ask yourself, what would I like to do? And there'll be a happy sense of something. And you do it. And you don't reconsider. And this will take everything into consideration. The money, the working conditions, future promotion, your artistic talents, location, everything. It will not suit your ego. It will not tailor this decision to everything your ego wants. But it will take it into consideration in a gentle way, plus a million other factors that you did not think of. And now you are trusting the decision because you were peaceful when you made it. And immediately you will start worrying about the decision Don't reconsider because your mind is now in a state of worry. Learn to not trust your mind if you're worrying. And so that's why you don't reconsider it. You're peaceful when you made it. And so you just do it. It doesn't matter how long you work at the job. It's not a failure if you work at the job for three weeks. How do you know it's a failure? What makes it a failure? Nothing except some silly business about how long we're supposed to keep a job. And the how long we're supposed to keep it now has greatly shortened. And now it's a mistake to keep a job for 20 years. And there's something wrong with you if you've been working for the same company all of your life. You see how silly all that is. So don't consider the money. And don't consider the artistic advantage. And don't consider the working conditions. And don't consider the people. And don't consider anything. Except your state of mind when you ask yourself, what do I want to do? And take only that aspect of the the decision that's at hand. Because this is a favorite ploy of the ego to ball something up into a great big package that can't be handled. Such as, what should I do in life? There's no way to answer that. Should I take, should I get a job as this or should I get a job as that can't be answered because there are little steps along the way. All you have to ask yourself is, do I wish to go for an interview or do I wish to open the paper and look at the want ads? That's all you have to ask yourself. This is the first step. 
I told you the story, but let me repeat it because it's such a lovely one of the of the woman who called me who was being beaten up, and um, she wanted to know whether or not she should get a divorce. And so I told her there was no such thing as a divorce. There was finding the attorney, there was calling the attorney, there was making the appointment for the attorney, there was going to the appointment, there was hearing the attorney out, there was paying the fee, there's this, that, and that. There's no such thing as getting a divorce. All you have to do is decide do you wish to take the first step. And she indeed did. So she found the attorney. She went to see the attorney. The attorney saw that she was a poor person, made her pay the entire fee in advance. Isn't our society crazy? <clears throat> this is in fact what happened. <laughs> You're poor. You've got to pay all the money now. <laughs> so, uh, and, uh, then there were other appointments and there were papers drawn up and so forth. And then there was the time in which she and her husband had to come in. And they came in. And the final papers were drawn up. And so now the decision was, should she sign? Each decision taken in its own time. And she picked up the pen. And she asked herself in peace, do I wish to sign the paper? And to her surprise, there was a very peaceful feeling of no. And she said, I don't want to sign this. And her husband said, well, I don't want to sign it either. And he thought that he did by that time. And they didn't sign it. And they lost the fee, of course. And he never touched her again. And they had their first child immediately after that. And she told me the story because I hadn't heard from her for a while. She told me the story with a newborn child in her arms. And I thought that, you know, she had gotten a divorce. So that's the way to take the decision. Don't be afraid of that. That's walking on the path of peace. Take nothing into consideration but your state of mind when you make the decision. And trust your state of mind, not the decision. Okay, the question was, if you've just gotten bad health news... How can you have peace? If you launch into trying to get rid of the bad health, you are, you've set yourself up for having no peace. And this is the common mistake being made now on people on a spiritual path. They think they shouldn't be sick. They think that being sick is an indication of some sort of spiritual failure. And this is in every part of the uh, Christian spectrum right now. It's in the fundamentalist part of it as well as the uh, outer crazy fringes like the dispensable church. <laughs> uh, and that is somehow you shouldn't have gotten sick. You shouldn't have had the financial failure. You shouldn't have been betrayed by your friends. Uh, your life should work like uh, uh, Seiko digital watch. with batteries. And this is all in the name of Jesus. And that sure is the way Jesus' life worked, didn't it? No one betrayed him. Nothing happened to him. No pain. You see how crazy this is. I don't know where this all came from. And so the first thing to realize is it doesn't mean anything that you've just been given this bad news. 
don't assign a meaning to it because you'll just torture yourself with it. Now, the second thing that must be said to people on the spiritual path, and I can tell by this glint in your eye that many of you are on a spiritual path, is that you must understand it is easier to handle an illness through physical means than it is through metaphysical. Isn't that shocking? statement. Here I have written books on uh, mental imagery and I go around the country talking uh, on mental imagery and I used to, I even used to be a Christian science practitioner in Dallas, Texas. Of course there's spiritual healing. But it is easier to handle something physically than it is mentally. And so start with the obvious, simple, physical thing to do. Don't go rushing madly around for perfect cures. There are no perfect cures. There's a cure for this person and a cure for that person. And there's no cure for these people. And that's just the situation. There is no perfect cure. So don't remember. What you want is the peace of God. And the peace of God is your best guide in any situation. All that's happened is your ego has tricked you into thinking that this situation is somehow different. It is no different to get cancer than it is to get on a bus. It's all the same. What you want is the peace of God and you want to make all decisions in peace. And so just sit calmly and ask yourself, what do you want to do about this? If you will do something overt and the person who asked that question, I feel will not be embarrassed by my telling you that uh, this woman had leukemia and she had it at a time in which there was no cure for leukemia. There is, of course, now very fine drugs for leukemia. And the doctors had given up on her. And so she asked in her heart, what did she wish to do? And she tried something totally out of the realm of medicine. And she healed herself of leukemia. But it wasn't metaphysical. It was a physical thing that she tried. But in calmness and in seeing that indeed she wished not to have leukemia and she wished to take the steps necessary, she tried this other thing that many people thought were crazy. It eliminated leukemia. And this was many years ago and it's never returned. That is neither good nor bad to get rid of the leukemia. For most of you, your way home lies in walking in peace and being kind and gentle and valuing harmony in your daily life. A growing sense of gentleness and happiness and peace that becomes more real than this world itself until you realize that that, in fact, is your home. That the peace of God is not the peace of God. Four words. <laughs> that the peace of God is reality. That is your way home. But it isn't everyone's way home. And there is another way home. You cannot choose this. But the chances are you would not be sitting here if this other way were your way home. There are many ways home. So I'm going to tell you about another one. And that is getting terminally ill 
and getting extremely sick and at the last minute turning completely to God. And there are people who do that and who lay aside their ego or come very close to laying aside their ego in those final few days or weeks. And Jerry Jampolsky and I are very close to a young girl who's doing precisely that. We've watched her do that as she dies of cancer that no one can cure, a very rare form of cancer. And we have seen her turn from a background of total atheism to one in which she speaks now of Jesus almost all the time, somewhat to the shock of her family who still are still atheists but sit by her bed. And so this can happen. And so there is no right or wrong. It doesn't matter whether you heal the disease or don't heal the disease. So what is the answer? Should you heal it or shouldn't you? Should you attempt to heal it? The answer is, if it's more peaceful to heal it, then begin the process that you think might lead to healing. There's no perfect process. There's no right process. You just take a few steps simple ones, ones that come to your mind in peace, and you begin following them. And the chances are you will lay aside the illness, no matter what the illness is. So how do you stay at peace once you've heard news like that? It is, of course, extremely difficult, but you do the best you can and if you will cut back on everything else, it will help immensely. So if you will draw from all of your contacts with other egos as much as you can, if you will simplify your life, when you find yourself in an extraordinarily difficult situation like that, you've just been given a death warrant, you're spouse has just walked out the door. Your business has just crashed. Your best friend has just betrayed you. Or a hundred thousand other things. If you will cut back on everything so that you, in a sense, are left with nothing but God. You see the sense you cut back on going out all the time and shopping all the time and making all the phone calls and doing all this stuff that you don't need to do and you cut back as much as you can. Of course, there'll be a few things that you can't cut back on because it would, it would disturb your peace to not, say, water the plants in your particular case or feed the animals or whatever it may be. But you withdraw as much as you possibly can until you are left with nothing but God and it becomes much simpler if you will simply focus on the problem and not be distracted. Do not be afraid to take those steps. It is misinformation to be told that you should somehow live as if everything were normal when there has been some crisis that's just occurred and is not responding to fear for you to cut back. So take those steps in the world that will make having the peace of God easy. 
Avoid those situations and people, yes, people, that make having the peace of God difficult for you. This is not a judgment against the person. But cut back on your contacts with the person if you need more peace. Now, if you're living with them, you can't do this sometimes. And so that, of course, is not the approach to use with someone that you're living with. We only had, what, how many questions did we have? Three or something. Uh, I'm, I'm sorry, we've run out of time. But this is the tradition, you see. Very long answers to short questions. <laughs>